president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. Tony Crescenzi is an executive vice president, market strategist at PIMCO. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor, and also a registered representative for Side Fund Services. I should note our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We're going to have a really great show today. We have a, a special guest in this studio with us for the hour, James McGrath, uh, somebody I just met today. He's a partner and director of research at LGL Partners in suburban Philadelphia, really one of my, my next door neighbors here in the Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, James, thanks for coming down to the studio today. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Delighted to be here. Uh, I'm going to be. We're going to have a f- conversation in the first half of the program with another guest. We'll go more into James's background and a little bit about LGL Partners on, on the second part of the program. Uh, but to, to kick off the show, the first half, we're going to be talking with Peter Chur from Breen Capital, who's a returning guest, somebody we always enjoy talking to about the fixed income markets. Uh, and Peter, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, before I get into the conversation, I want to tell our listeners we have an exciting new announcement. In addition to listening live on SiriusXM like you are now, we also are going to have a podcast version of Behind the Markets. Uh, so if you want to stay in touch with Behind the Markets, you can follow us here on SiriusXM, but also on our new podcast. Uh, uh, Peter, so just give us a, a general sense, um, you know, specializing in fixed income. We haven't talked to you in a little while. A lot of moves in the fixed income markets over the last six months. Um, maybe us, give us your lay of the land. How are you reading the market uh, and the economy here? You know, I think people are finally questioning whether this whole reflation trade is actually going to occur. So we've seen bond yields come lower. There's been a little bit of pessimism. And to be honest, I think people are a little bit unhappy or disappointed with the way the press conference went this week. And that's, again, caused some support for fixed income. So you know, if we look at the 10-year which yield, which had been doing nothing but going up, it's stabilized and come down a decent amount. So we're around 235 on the 10-year right now. I mean, it's amazing we're reacting to these press conferences and saying we're going to adjust these rates in, in such a dynamic fashion here. I mean, what, what's your, I mean, if you think about the big moves, I mean, the 10-year the last year, 136, shot up all the way towards 260. Uh, we're bouncing around now, um, what is it, around 236, 240? Yeah, uh, right in that area. Trying to pull it up. I mean, what, what's your... What's your general sense? Did we just get too pessimistic on growth last year? Uh, do you do you see inflation pressures coming back, or, or how do you how do you view it playing out the rest of the year? Yeah, so I think last year we got fairly bearish towards the summer. Um, you know, we suffered a little bit of pain, but then turned out to be right on yields. And I think fixed income investors had become too bearish, and they'd become too reliant on central bank support. So I think right now, people do have to start pricing this potential reflation trade, that maybe there can be real global growth. And at the same time, I think we have to be pricing in a little bit more, or less, I guess, central bank activity. Even the Fed, all of a sudden, the last few days, the message seems to be talking about reducing their balance sheet. So you're seeing globally the ECB pull back on their quantitative easing. And the last bastion kind of a true quantitative easing seems to be in Japan, where they've committed or pledged to keep the 10-year JGB, Japanese government bond, at 0%. And if that breaks, I think we could see another shift rapidly to higher yields globally. 
Yeah, I mean, that is the one of the things I, I think about as the global lowest common denominator. You have a lot of the Japanese who, because they're capping the, the tenure at zero, that they're coming to U.S. treasuries and, uh, you know, they're picking up that yield spread. Um, James, why don't you weigh in here a little bit? What's your thoughts? How does OGL Partners think about the fixed income markets today and, and, and what you're thinking about? Well, first off, I, I have to note that I, I thought 2016 was an incredible year, particularly uh, you know, June uh, into July after Brexit. Uh, you know, I think that's when we hit uh, 136 um, intraday on, on the 10-year. And, um, you know, I, I think that was, you know, perhaps the, uh, the, the high watermark, so to speak, of, of the bond rally. Um, you know, P- Peter can probably provide more insights into that. But, you know, that, that was, you know, very much a reflection, uh, you know, both of, of the, um, the, the overhang of quantitative easing, but, but also more so at that episode, um, you know, just a, a risk off sort of posture and, a, you know, flight to safety. Um, you know, we, we saw that the, the equity markets righted themselves pretty quickly after that. I mean, I, you know, I was just looking back over the, the data last year and I was struck by how quickly, um, you know, after Brexit, U.S. equities were off, you know, maybe three and a half percent one day, you know, one and a half percent the next day and, you know, you know, all told, you know, five to six percent. But then, you know, with really within a week had climbed out of that. Now, uh, you know, the 10-year didn't didn't do that uh, on anywhere, um, you know, anywhere close to that time frame. But, you know, as we know, it finished the year at, at around 240. And, and so in percentage terms, that, that's a huge shift. Um, and, and now to, to some of the points that Peter and Jeremy made, um, y- you know, this this could be the start of, of the reflation moment. You know, we see a lot of the the, the metrics which are, favorable or, or suggestive of, of that. Um, and and so it'll be interesting to see if, if the Fed actually uh, continues with the sentiment that they express in, in December. And, and we think that there are, are a lot of reasons for that to, to continue. Yeah, our, our first episode of this year, we were talking with Pat Harker here in the studio. He has penciled in three rate hikes this year. He talked about a hospital in our area who last year had to give wage hikes. This year, pressure, the shortage of nurses, 9% they had to hike wages, which is, it sounds like he, I mean, he was already thinking they needed to hike a little bit more aggressively. He's seeing some of these signs of wage pressures, continuing declines in the labor force. Uh, so it is going to be an interesting, if you do get a little bit more hawkish fed here, what, what that's going to mean. Peter, what, where, where would, do you see tilts happening within fixed income portfolios? Do you see opportunities in credit? Do you like high yield? I mean, how do you suggest yeah. to your clients? That's something you know, we've been looking at. And one of the most interesting things, that I believe, is there's all this talk about the great rotation. And yes, money's coming into equities, but a lot of that, I think, is coming out of cash. And what I'm seeing within fixed income is some money coming out of treasuries. Some money was coming out of longer-term treasuries, so that's you know, slowed down. But a lot of it was really finding its way into you know, high-yield credits. So high-yield's done very well throughout this and looks, you know, should continue to do well. If we get any sort of M&A activity, that tends to be good for high yield. The other area is leveraged loans. So these are, they're similar to high yield bonds. It's often the same companies. They're senior in the capital structure, but they're floating rate. So as LIBOR's been increasing, they've been being able to pay out a higher yield. So you've seen large inflows into that. We're also seeing flows at a step beyond that. So away, say, from the ETF and mutual funds, there's all these alt credit strategies that can range in CLO products. Anything that's floating rate, anything that's a bit structured, anything that's a little bit riskier 
seems to be doing well right now, and that makes sense given the reflation trade. It's really kind of a part of that risk-on move. So that's the areas I see doing well. Investment grade, I think you have to be very careful with unless because there is so much interest rate risk. So I like the leverage loan space, some of these floating rate notes hmm. um, as my choice right now. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious if either of you saw uh, in the Wall Street Journal, I, I want to say within the last week, the story was why you should be wary of junk bonds. And they had mm-hmm. a 20-year chart showing a, a sort of loss-adjusted spread over treasuries. And they said, you know, the last 20 years, the average spread was something like 2.8 points. And then now the spread's like 1.2. Um, and so I, I'm wondering if, if either of you guys have an opinion on just that spread that we, which is certainly compressed today versus where it blew out a year ago. Uh, any, any sense there? Yeah, I'll take a quick shot at that. Uh, we were just talking about this last night with um, some distressed investors, and you're seeing people build up distressed deaths in anticipation of a higher level of defaults. And when I look at it, the problems that I see in terms of it not being so bad, there's not as much triple C issuance. There's not as much what we call drive-bys, where unheard of companies come by and issue debt in the morning without anyone really having a chance to look through it. On the leveraged loan side, We've seen the Fed has tightened down on that, what banks can do, so there's not as much leverage. I just don't think the composition of the market is as dangerous as it's been in the past. It's higher quality. There's more large Mm. double B-type companies. So it's a bit misleading, I think, to look at average spread when the composition of the market has changed so much. So right now, I'm actually not that concerned. We're not running into real problems. We're not seeing companies, you know, blow up. And I think so much of this is a mix of what the companies look like that were safer than these stories might appear. Obviously, we've always got to be vigilant, <laughs> vigilant yeah. and high yield, but I'm okay with it right Th- now. That's a very interesting point. I haven't heard it framed that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with, with any of that. I mean, it, it, it's true that, you know, uh, to Jeremy's point, compared to this time last year, uh, high yield spreads were, were certainly uh, wider than their historical average, and, and we thought that in 2016 start of 2016 was a great time tactically to get in, into the high yield. And, and those spreads really, um, you know, from February through the end of the year did tighten materially. Um, you know, we, we look at option adjusted spread uh, over treasuries and, um, you know, over, over the, the, the long, long run, uh, you know, I think you might say that that, that is tighter than, than it has been. Now, to Peter's point, though, uh, we we definitely are sympathetic to the composition of the market, uh, and at the same time, you know a lot of these these issuers uh, you know, do do have relatively robust balance sheets, which which is another consideration. But uh, you know, just another thing that we we looked at in 2016, and and Peter alluded to this, was actually distressed high yield. Um, you know, last year, I, I think high yield returned around 13 percent. If you if you look at a, a, a the uh, the market. Uh, benchmark, very healthy return. Uh, a lot of that was spread compression, not all of it. But distressed high yield uh, really had a remarkable year. There, there aren't as many in- indices that track that, but but one representative one uh, was probably up forty to fifty percent. And in, you just looked at valuations in distress at the beginning of twenty sixteen, bonds selling at at forty cents on the dollar. Whereas historical recovery rates uh, in in, in uh, these issuers that would have gone into default weren't actually they were actually pretty close to the price you could buy the bonds at, so we we saw those as actually a you know pretty pretty good margin of error. 
We're going to just reintroduce our guests here. On the phone, we have Peter Chur of Bring Capital. In the studio, we have James McGrath of LGL Partners. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, uh, Peter, it's sort of interesting. I'm, I'm reading through some of your notes that you, you sent along, and you had one uh, titled, Entering Unprecedented Territory. Uh, and certainly, you know, without talking about the markets, uh, it'd be, we, ha- we have to talk a little bit about the, the, the president-elect and, and what we think is going to happen uh, under the new administra- administration. Uh, maybe give us your sense of how you're trying to, to read into what's happening and, and how you handicap some of the, the different initiatives. Yeah, I think what we've been trying to do is, at one level, keep it very, very simple and working under the assumption that he has limited time and resources, so he's going to go for some easy wins or after some of the low-hanging fruit. So one area we continue to like here is anything in the energy space or energy transmission. We have a very strong belief and view from what we're hearing out of Washington as well that, and it just, I think, makes sense from a common-sense level, is that a lot of Republicans come from energy-backed states. There's energy wealth within the Republican Party, so anything energy-supportive is going to have that group's backing. At the same time, anything that can be construed or pitched as energy independence for the U.S. should get the backing of those you know, defense hawks. And at the same time, it really was probably one area where Obama was very disruptive in terms of regulations. So, you know, for lack of a better word, they get to you know, slap them in the face by deregulating some of this and really pushing towards energy. So we think that, that there's going to be a lot of growth in the energy space, energy transmission, you know, our, our Transmission grids are way behind. The pipeline areas, there's a lot that can be done. So we're looking there. I think it's going to be very company-specific, and this can really help that trend that we saw last year in the high-yield and distress market where some of these smaller energy companies that managed to make it through last year can now be good acquisition targets. No, it's interesting. I think about this theme a lot and thinking about how do you actually structure a concept around our infrastructure spending is obviously the number one story in whether you're looking in the U.S., you're looking at Japan's doing it, China's doing it. Now, so you say, I wanted to try to do infrastructure theme for the, the U.S. I want to try to say Trump's going to invest. Uh, we're going to do, you know, add these pipelines. We want to get these suppliers of it. But if we do increase the supply of, of let's say, energy and oil, you know, that, that may not be good for generally energy stocks, but it could be good for some of the suppliers. I mean, how do you, how do you think about that? So uh, I, I think we're very much congruent with Peter's view that energy is, is very interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it's almost a night and day situation with a change of administration and, and particularly the, the way uh, some of the supporting cast seems to be falling in, into place. Um, uh, the Republicans, you know, to Peter's point, in, in, in general, there there is a good representation from, uh, you know, energy generating states, so they have that. But I, I think the whole mindset, uh, energy independence, and what have you, is very strong in this administration, and it, it may be something of a an about face. the The question about how do you invest in infrastructure is a great one, and I, I think that that the the rules of the game with respect to the new administration are, are still being written. But, you know, to the point of the um, the intersection of, of infrastructure and energy, uh, you know, an area that we are, are pretty constructive on right now is energy infrastructure. Um, you know, a lot of those uh, opportunities uh, may be available through MLP structures. Um, and, you know, there are, are a handful there. And, and actually that space, broadly speaking, um, we, we think that there, there could be opportunity there. Um, but getting outside of energy in terms of the way uh, 
infrastructure investment is going to be funded going forward. MLPs are, you know, a great mechanism for doing that in, in energy, but they are somewhat uh, circumscribed in what they can do. It'll be interesting to see, though, uh, as as the administration gets some legs, what they look to to, to achieve in terms of um, other sorts of infrastructure investment. And I know that they are thinking much more broadly than, than just pipelines. Yeah, and the other area we've been playing this from or taking a look at it is from technology companies. They should benefit from the repatriation. A lot of the money that's sitting overseas is in some of the big tech companies. And regardless of who wins what in the infrastructure space, they're going to have to use technology to do that. So I think it's going to be a second-order effect. You won't get you won't be as right as if you pick the exact companies that win some of the big mandates, but it's a safer way to play it because you've got this repatriation backing it, which helps. And whoever wins is going to have to spend some money on technology as part of their projects. So we like that as kind of a safer or you know wimpier way to play it. There you go. Um, t- on on your grid of sort of how easy it is for him to get things done, uh, and then sort of the cr- the crucial to low, you have sort of this desire materiality chart. Uh, in terms of what the president can do. Talk about the 50-year bond you have listed. I mean, do you think uh, long-term duration, we have ultra-low rates, uh, although not as low as Europe and Japan, but we have ultra-low rates. Do you think we're going to issue these very long-term bonds? I think we will. I think it makes sense to a lot of the projects they're talking about, you know, are very long-term projects. So I personally like the idea of trying to match the duration of your assets and liabilities, if you almost think of it as a company. Hey, we're going to build some roads. We're going to build some, you know, pipelines. These have a very long lifespan. Let's fund it with 50-year debt. It's going to be more expensive than funding it with short-term debt, but you take away that rollover risk. You lock in that cost, and I think it's going to be easier to do some cost-benefit analysis if you really try and match up the funding to the project life. That's the advice I believe he's receiving from people. The Treasury Secretary believes in that, thinks that way, and it's just a for me, a safer way to do it. There's definitely a higher cost by using longer debt. But to me, locking in your debt versus and that asset liability management is a key step. And you know, Trump lives in the high-yield world where he has to borrow bonds at 12 and 13 percent. You know, if he can borrow... Four percent for fifty years—that's probably going to seem dirt cheap to him. Yeah, and when I think about what the the Treasury has issued in terms of new securities, they've gone the opposite direction. They started issuing floating rate debt. And you could say we're at the ultimate bottom <laughs> <Right>. or <laughs> ultimate low interest rates, and now let's start issuing floating rate debt. I mean, that just uh, mind-boggling. <laughs> it, it is. So I mean, I think to the extent that you could extend duration when it's at the lowest levels, uh, it, it should definitely be interesting. And the corporations have been doing that. If you, it's it, really interesting to see. Uh, there that you know the treasury curve kind of ends in 2046 but there's a lot of 2055 56 57 corporate dated bonds because i think they saw this as an advantage you've seen other countries spain has come out with 50-year bonds japan's talking about it i think it's going to be a trend it makes a lot of sense and hopefully it'll reverse course of what the treasury department really did the past few years which i think is a mistake because it's too short-termism uh, let me just reintroduce our guest one more time here. We're talking with Peter Chur of Breen Capital on the phone in the studio, James McGrath of, of LGL Partners. On your on this grid that you have, Peter, you also talk a little bit about, you know, another interesting question on on, uh, on related to interest rates is, as we're talking focus here on this first part of the conversation. You talk about potentially uh, interest rates being deducted. Maybe talk a little bit about what you mean there. Do you think there's going to be any changes in the deductibility of interest? Uh, and then anything 
um, also that might change the taxes. Uh, you know, there's going to be a whole host of, of tax change measures. Um, the muni market, you know, could be under review. I mean, I'm wondering what, you, how do you think about taxes and, and bonds? Yeah, this has been one of the more difficult questions out there. Certainly, as they talk about all the things they're going to do to pay, you know, increase taxes, removing the tax deductibility of interest payments that keeps coming up, and whether it would be grandfathered or not, what it does for the housing, because it could hit mortgages. So, you know, you and I might be affected on our mortgage payments. Mm-hmm. It's very tricky. I believe there's going to be pushback on it, partly because people have built up their whole capital structures, both as individuals and as companies around these tax laws. I think it's going to be hard to change very quickly, but that's something we're trying to figure out. I, it's one reason we've started recommending to some people to buy closed-end muni funds, we think the selling's overdone. We think any tax law changes are going to take longer to come through than people would, you know, are currently scared of. And um, you get some of these things at a discount. Um, the other area this keeps coming back to is this border tax. I think that ties into the energy policy because, as the other guests were saying, um, as you know, we get supply up here, it could put some pressure on energy prices. So any sort of you know border tax that makes foreign oil relatively expensive to ours, helps support the price. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts. I think it's going to take closer to a year to change the tax code because everyone would like to make these things and say, hey, let's change this. Too much time, energy has been spent building up around the existing rules for them to change quickly, but that's we're constantly trying to get a feel for that. This is one of those areas where you say, you know, Trump you know, has potential or may even need to become one of the most bipartisan pulling people in from different aisles because a lot of his agenda, the Republicans agree with, a lot of the agenda the Republicans don't agree with. Um, and so even on things like that border tax, where there's a part of that group that is saying, yes, let's, let's, um, you know, Trump thinks all this money we're spending on imports is, is money we're sending abroad and making us, you know, poor that we could get 4% growth just by not having imports. Um, but then you got people like Walmart saying, hey, you know, we won't have any profits and we're the biggest employer in the U.S. You want to see us destroy some jobs, do this, not let us deduct our costs of imports. Um, that could be a real problem. Um, so it's going to be really interesting how all these political forces line up and who Trump aligns with to get some of these deals done. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating. On, on the interest deduction, I mean, it, it is so, sort of interesting. I mean, I, I remember when I first started working with Professor Siegel, 2002, 2003, he actually ended up being an advisor to Bush on the dividend tax uh, changes that they made back under the Bush administration. And he had wrote an op-ed um, saying, you know, this was when there was the Enron accounting scandals, and we're saying, how do we actually put trust in earnings? Well, make if you make dividends fully deductible, you know, you'd pay out all your earnings as dividends, and you you know, remove this double taxation. Where right now we we encourage people to do interest and discourage equity financing because you can deduct interest and not equity. So it would be, in some ways, a way to level that playing field if they did the interest rate. Deductions. Yeah, I think there's a lot of appeal to it. It just, as you think about it, it just there's. The possible ways it plays out seems very difficult to nail down, which is why I think it'll take longer to come through. But it's going to be very interesting, like you say, on the border tax. Yeah, you read our opinions from very, very smart people coming at it extremely different, you know, outcomes. James, how do you think about the the munis uh, that we were just talking about? Well, it's it's interesting. From time to time, we we have taken a look at. Um, uh, close-in funds, and you know, you know, as a lot of the listeners are are well aware, close-in funds can you know, trade uh, at a discount or a premium to their their NAV, um, and you know, sometimes that that can gap out 
pretty widely. And, and to, to Peter's point, we've seen that happen um, you know, recently in, in municipal bonds. We, we, we typically don't, um, you know, we, we don't try to take advantage of those uh, dislocations per se, because it, my experience has been that they can persist for, for a long time, even if, if the you know, fundamental asset value is one thing, you, you can have uh, any number of reasons why a, a closed-end fund may uh, trade at a discount for a long time, even though in theory, um, you know, at some point, and especially if if you could, you know, force the breakup of of the closing fund, that the assets would would actually be valued at their NAV. All that being said, I, you know, I think this this question of um, you know what's going to happen with the tax policy is 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 a fantastic question, and it's a conundrum. Um, I, I think Jeremy is spot on in that uh, you know some of Trump's positions are are, are generally going to be more. Uh, you know, seen more favorably by the Republicans, uh, you know, tax law reform is going to be something that is going to re- require a lot more bipartisanship. And it'll be interesting to see how much of that can be achieved. I mean, there are certain things th- that one can do with the tax code more easily, changing marginal tax rates without any of this, you know, fundamental structural reform. That's one thing. Interest tax uh, or interest uh, tax deductions, that, that's a bigger thing. And, and you know, I think one of the, the big ones, the elephant in the room, is the mortgage tax deduction. That one, you know, it's not exactly the third rail, but, you know, that's that's something that I uh, w- would be surprised if there's any sort of uh, impetus to go after. Hmm. So, so Peter, uh, going back to sort of, we, we have maybe four or five minutes left on, on this first segment here. Um, we talked a lot about sort of U.S. fixed income. We talked about high yield. Um, you know, one of your, your notes uh, talks about macro strategies. We haven't really talked about the foreign markets all that much. I mean, we sort of alluded to Europe and Japan and low rates. But I, I know one of your pieces does talk about sort of the global equity markets as well, European stocks. Uh, maybe sort of get framed for me and our listeners how you're thinking about global equities and the opportunities there. One area I've been particularly focused on recently is actually on the EM space, where the initial reaction to the Trump victory was to, you know, punish the EM market, the stronger dollar was going to be a concern. I keep looking at that space in that it, it seems underowned right now, so people sold out of it. And at the same time, if we really are going to have U.S. growth, energy, you know, growth, global growth possibly. I think the EM countries can be beneficiaries. They typically do well in times of global growth. So I've been looking a lot at the EM, both on the bond side and on the equity side. And then away from that, there is a developing growth story in Europe. There's a potential growth story, and maybe just less of a bad story out of Japan. And so you look at those markets, and I think it's hard to argue that Japanese companies are, you know, expensive versus U.S. In fact, they look cheap. So I think we have to start stepping back, and the initial reaction has been Trump's going to develop U.S. growth. U.S. growth is good for U.S. companies. The reality might be it might be better for other countries, and companies based in other countries, they're going to get the benefit from U.S. sales as we pick up. They might not have the dollar issues. The strong dollar is something people have been comfortable with so far, but when we look at, say, FTSE after the Brexit, so the U.K. index, it really benefited from a weak currency. 
we're kind of struggling to go higher here, and I think part of it's that dollar strength. So I'm starting to look a little bit more away from us, and Japan keeps coming up in EM. Yeah, no, I think you're, what, what's funny is I actually did a piece about combining Japan and emerging markets at the end of last year. I said one is the strong dollar beneficiary, which is Japan. One is a weak dollar story, which is emerging markets. So if you combine those two together, they have some interesting combinations. Um, and actually, I often also say if you do some of this sort of regression or, or factor analysis, Japan is actually so levered to U.S. growth. It's actually one of the biggest, you know, if you do like a two-factor regression, say, you know, your interest rate sensitivity and your market sensitivity, Japan literally is more than negative one beta and more than negative one impacted by rising rates. And and I think the, or, or sort of more than falling rates, it's, it's, it, it benefits with rising rates. And it's tied to U.S. growth. I mean, Toyota has more growth or profits from the U.S. and it does the. I'll have to take a look at that. That's interesting. Yeah. And one thing you know, we talked about Trump and you know his tweets. One thing that really impressed me was Toyota basically came out and defended themselves, and they seemed to get the support of the Japanese government when he went after them. And I thought that was very encouraging. If you want to be investing in a country, I think you want to be investing in someone who's saying, "Hey, listen, we're doing the right things. We have a lot of plants in the U.S." But we're going to have plants elsewhere. I, I, I thought that was an interesting possible turning point in the whole cyberbullying type aspect. And I like the fact that it was Japan doing it. Yeah. No, I, I think it's interesting. Bloomberg had a really great graphic. I don't think this has gotten talked about enough. Um, looking at why is uh, are the com- car companies going to Mexico? And they, they showed, you know, the cost savings from an employee, you know, the, the, the wages. If you look at the wages in Mexico, it's something like $8 an hour versus $46 an hour. So yeah, you get an 80% wage benefit, right? But it acts like $600 a car. And then it costs you $300 more to ship it because the infrastructure is not good. So on a, on a, on a sort of labor and shipping, you're sort of saving $300. The reason why, though, they go to Mexico is that Mexico has 44 different free, free trade agreements. So their importing things end up costing them like $2,500 less per car. So it's not NAFTA that's the problem. It's the fact that they have 44 trade agreements that get them more imports. So hopefully, I think Trump comes to the idea that we need more trade agreements that people can import here better. Um, now, maybe these car companies can get the benefits of this arbitrage that Mexico has all these free trade agreements, then they can sort of get it to the U.S. with NAFTA. So maybe he's going to try to change that to put it on a level playing field. But hopefully he goes in the other direction and say, why don't we just import things cheaper? Yeah, and I think that would be a much more palatable outcome to the you know to investors rather than really attacking and going anti-trade. No, and they, they're, you know, what's interesting is the... Um, you know, the statements from Navarro and Wilbur Ross, they put, wrote this paper in September and they say they want more trade. They just want better trade. Now, the question will actually mean, what does that actually mean? Um, but uh, he says they want more trade, but uh, people just react, oh, he wants no trade. Yeah. And if I always go back to, you know, Bernanke, always, we all remember him for, you know, the helicopter money, but he always said two things. One, fiscal stimulus, so that we're getting. But the other thing he said that was a big root cause of the Depression was protectionism. So I think we want to be very careful on protectionism and trying to grow our own industry via all these uh, tariffs and barriers. Well, Peter, uh, always uh, a pleasure to talk with you. I think we're at the bottom part of this first part. Thanks so much for, Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, we're going to continue on the second half with, with James McGrath. We were talking with Peter Chur, Breen Capital, on the first part of the program. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111.
I have James McGrath of LJL Partners here in the studio. He is a, a neighbor in the Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, we have, uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. We had a great conversation in the first part of our program with Peter Chur. Um, James, before we get into to your background, just want to f- give you a final chance to, to wrap up our conversations on the macro policies, the interest rate environment. Uh, any sort of concluding thoughts from, from that first part of our, our conversation? Well, we certainly covered a lot of ground, and, and those are all important issues. But yeah, I, I think the the uh, idea of where we go from from here with respect to the the Trump administration and trade is a really interesting question. Uh, you know, Jeremy made made some interesting observations in, in the first segment about the, uh, the the cost differential of of uh, car production in the U.S. versus Mexico, and and yes, Mexico does have certain cost advantages, uh, but they aren't huge, uh, believe it or not. I mean, there there are. Uh, wage advantages and those are pronounced, but but then the other frictions and what have you also uh, get get incorporated in, into the relative cost of production. So all told, yes, there is an advantage, but it's not huge. The benefits that Mexico has isn't so much uh, the, the 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 cost margin, but but rather uh, there are uh, plethora of of trade agreements with other countries and. Uh, Trump has been uh, identified with or, or maligned as being protectionist or, or to uh, to be inclined to to enter into a trade war, and you know trade war certainly could be enacted or affected through putting up tariffs and border tax, you know this that and the other thing. But is it the case that a a trade war could be fought on, on the grounds of of more competitive uh, trade policies and and actually? Um, really becoming competitive from a uh, a, a trade agreement perspective, and, and it'll be interesting to see that. And and then you know, just as a segue into uh, you know, maybe something we can talk about in the second half. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty well known that uh, you know within the the S and P five hundred, uh, thirty to forty percent of of earnings are actually earned offshore, and uh, that that number is. is you're probably going to you continue inching upwards, and and the big bigger point is that supply chains are globalized and markets are are globalized, and even U.S. domiciled companies uh, still need access and, and to develop markets um, outside the U.S. and and a lot of things are going to go into that. Some of that's going to be trade policy, some of that's going to be the dollar and and a number of other factors as well. Well, let's let's step back a little bit because we went pretty deep on uh, the on, on a lot of the individual commentaries here. Um, we didn't really go deep into your background uh, and the firm and and and, what, and who you work with. So maybe uh, you are a fellow uh, Wharton guy. So it's always great to have Wharton uh, alumni come back to the studio here on the campus. But but tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background and and then and then your firm's background. Sure. Well, I, I certainly had the good fortune of attending Wharton as an undergraduate in the in the nineteen nineties. I spent most of my time in Seinberg Dietrich Hall. We we didn't have the benefit of of the uh, wonderful Huntsman Hall back then, and I, I'm just really thrilled to to see how Wharton has has just um, you know gone from strength to strength and is uh, ever more relevant and, and insightful and influential. Um, but anyway, once I, I graduated from Wharton, I, I went to to work in New York. I, I went to Solomon Brothers where. I, I started out in the equity program trading group, 
And and that was a, sort of a combination of, of both equity trading, equity index trading, uh, some some index ARB, uh, and also uh, customer facilitation trading and, and what have you. It, you know, at that time, it was doing some cutting-edge things that uh, now um, you, you can do on your, uh, your E-Trade account. But, uh, you know, at that time, it was really, really interesting stuff. I, I also uh, worked at UBS for a while and, and Bank of America. I then went back and, and did my MBA at Yale. Uh, upon uh, finishing my MBA, I came back to Philadelphia and worked with the Federal Reserve for a few years. And then I, I joined... Uh, the predecessor firm to, to LGL Partners, which was a single-family office, but located here, and at, at that time started to build out a lot of the asset allocation framework, and, and in particular, a lot of um, uh, capabilities and analytical um, infrastructure in, in order to analyze alternative investments and and to to integrate alternative investments, hedge funds, and what have you into diversified portfolios. And that, that's something that we've continued to do to this day. And uh, it, it's how we spend a lot of time. So talk about, you know, your, your type of clients. So, that who's, so who would be a, you know, people listening in, who would be somebody that, that would be somebody who, who should think about OGL Partners? Well, that's a great question. So we are a family office. And a fa- family office is a private investment firm. We, we don't work with a large number of clients. We actually have about 50 to 60 relationships, and uh, uh, you know, given those relationships, we they, they tend to be very holistic. So we we are first and foremost an investment firm, and, and that's how we spend most of our time, and that's something that we we think we're we're pretty good at. Uh, but we look at investments as you know just one aspect of life planning for for our clients and uh, you know a lot of the other things that we do can be looking at investments in the context of wealth or uh, of asset location and wealth structuring um, you know planning uh, you know but planning both uh, you know with respect to the assets during your own life but but also you know even more so planning you know with respect to subsequent generations and and so we we tend to have a very holistic look and and to integrate and uh, in, investments, uh, and and of those investments, often many of our clients will have uh, significant private uh, investments. Uh, you know, a lot of most of our, our clients tend to be uh, in the wealth creation phase of, of their lives. They are are, are, are first generation uh, wealth creators. Uh, some of of which uh, have had liquidity events from taking a private company public, or, or may still have a private company that that generates a lot of cash flow. So they're very much hands-on with, with, um, with, with the businesses that they, they came from. Uh, and then will look to us to help to integrate that expertise and, and, and those assets in, in something of a more holistic and diversified program. And, and, and we think that's where we can really add value. So if you, if you have only 50, 60 relationships, I'm sure there's a lot of customization that happens for each specific client and each person's private business has a different profile. But how would, how would you describe, um, you know, for, for general listeners, how, you know, you talked about alternatives, that's not easy to access for somebody without a lot of capital. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how do you, do you guys have minimums that then you sort of deal with a, a certain clientele or how would you sort of structure that advice for people listening in? Well, well it's, it's true. Um, but, but, you know, even the term, 
you know, hedge fund is it's not an extremely uh, descriptive or helpful term because it can mean so many things. I mean, it you know at the end of the day, it, you know they're typically private placement securities and and um, they're they're not forty act compliant, but um, but uh, you know in terms of, of, of strategy or what have you, it's pretty wide open. And then uh, the flip side of that is over the past few years, there's been a a uh, you know just a proliferation of so-called um, forty act alternatives or marketable alternatives. So, which is really a matter of of taking some of these uh, strategies that used to be the, the province of of hedge funds, broadly speaking, and, and you know one of the prototypical ones would be uh, you know risk arb. Uh, you know back in the day, even before hedge funds hit their their stride, maybe fifteen years ago. Risk Arb was was one of the the uh, the, the the big um, you know influential and and you know prestigious parts of of most of the the major banks and you you look at you know some of the the more you know prominent um, Goldman Sachs alumni that have have gone on to other things or or, or Citigroup alumni they often made a tour at the, on the Risk Arb desk and that that was basically uh, you know, working, uh, you know, in, in the merger and acquisition space, and and seeing, you know, if if a deal is announced, what you know, what are the probabilities of it being closed, and you know, are the risk premiums right, and what have you. That used to be something that was just done in the risk arb desk, and then people from the risk arb desk took that and and did it in hedge fund structures. Uh, but more recently, strategies like that have have sort of migrated, and, and there are ways to access that, but. But alternative assets, more generally, we look at as as things that are are more flexible, that can be accommodative of of um, new types of strategies, or provide exposure to different um, maybe alternative risk premia that are different than your typical equity risk premia or your uh, uh, your um, uh, uh, Credit risk and what have you. There are other sorts of risk premia that that typically get their start being exposed or exploited in alternative strategies, and then maybe uh, a number of years later become more democratized, and then you can access them through mutual funds or, or ETFs and what have you. We we spend a lot of time trying to identify those and and find them before they become too democratized. I should say. We're talking with James McGrath of LGL Partners. Um, James, what? Tell us. Uh, so you talked a little bit there about the the alternatives in an asset allocation model. Maybe talk about just traditional markets. You think about an equity fixed income allocation. Uh, we talked a little bit about fixed income in the first segment of, of the show, but maybe so. Maybe talk about how would you think about a global equity allocation today? You know the biases I see in a lot of portfolios from people very U.S. domiciled. And, and with Peter's conversation we had the first part, a lot of the opportunities may be international. He liked Japan emerging markets. How, how are you thinking about that global opportunity set? Those are great questions, and that's, that's really something we think about a lot. Well, first off, equities are very, very important to us. We, we look at equities as, as really the, the foundation of asset growth over time. Uh, and and primarily, those would be public equities in our portfolios. But the, the earlier point I made, many of our, our clients will also have uh, private investments, uh, private equity 
in perhaps a family business or some other combination of private equity holdings. We, we look at both public equities and, and private equities as that that sort of linchpin or, or foundation of portfolio growth over time. On top of that, we will judiciously incorporate uh, various sorts of fixed income. And, and then something we, we regard broadly as non-traditional assets. And by definition, those are things aside from, from equities and fixed income. And they may include uh, commodities, uh, uh, broadly speaking, alternatives and hedge funds, um, and you know, things like uh, private real estate or, or public real estate as well are, are, are things that we would consider in, in that third category. So by and large, most of, of the portfolios we will put together have an equity component, which is the preponderance, uh, fixed income component, which we have for for a, a number of reasons, and then a non-traditional component, which could be expressed through both public and private instruments. Now, to, to your point, Jeremy, about the international versus U.S. orientation, that's that's a great question, and you know, much the same way that we would look at an individual who has a a significant uh, employee stock ownership plan or stock options or a restricted stock within a, a certain company that they continue to work for, which would basically present a compound risk to that individual because both their income as well as their assets are, are tied to that. We, we look at that a little bit more broadly. Uh, most of the people we deal with are, are U.S.-based and are specifically U.S. taxpayers. Um, and and then their earnings are tied to the health of the U.S. economy, which, by the way, we can talk about why, what we think about that. Um, we're, we're constructive. Um, but that being said, that is, is one set of, of risks and valuations. And we certainly spend a lot of time looking outside the U.S. and to areas which we think are interesting. Yeah, Japan, in terms of a particular country, is interesting. Developed Europe broadly is another area which we will often compare to uh, um, large cap U.S. equities and 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 try to line those up and, and see where the the um, advantages disadvantages may be. And then emerging markets are, are a third area with a different dynamic. And and then one final sliver that I, I will throw out there that we we also have a selective exposure to is frontier market equities. And that that's an entirely different ball game, and I, you know, depending on how much time we have, maybe we can touch upon any subset of those. So let, let's. I mean, Europe is is an interesting one. We talked a, a little bit on Japan and emerging markets. The political risk there is the most common pushback when I talk with people. They say, "How can you invest in Europe? You've got these elections coming up next year. We see the rise of unpredictable elections with Brexit, with Trump." Um, we've got the French, the German elections. I mean, how do you think about that? Well, it's interesting. I, um, so you could look at the UK. The UK is a, a great example because you have have Brexit. For a US investor, there are, are two uh, big contributors to your investment return when you invest internationally. It's, it's going to be the equity return and the currency return if, if you're a US denominated investor. And and so uh, you look at the... Um, the EFA equities, which are, are broadly speaking, uh, developed Europe and, and developed Asia, they were slightly positive in 2016. Uh, and by that, I mean, on a total return basis up around 1%, give or take. 
whereas on a currency hedge basis, they were up uh, over 8%. And, you know, again, EFA is mostly dominated by Europe and, and the UK is a big part of that. Um, during that time or over uh, the, the course of 2016, uh, the, the euro was, uh, you know, took some hits and, and um, the pound in particular was off uh, in the high teens almost 20%. If, if you controlled for uh, the, the currency moves both with respect to those equities more broadly, but, but in particular with respect to UK equities, it, and, and despite the sell-off after Brexit, it actually would have actually been quite good. So my point is that, um, that you really have to have a view on both the currency and the equities, and, and I think you can evaluate them both independently, and there are ways now to to segment that. Uh, and, and you don't have to, to, um, to assume both risk at the same time. You may want to, but you can also look at the, the equities on their own. And to, to the same point I made earlier about the S&P earnings, uh, so, so many of those being internationally sourced, you can say the same thing about some of the, the marquee European uh, equities as well. And, and, and so if, if they are selling at depressed valuations due to a whole host of things, and you, you become agnostic about where, where the euro is going, well, then I think it, it could be a very compelling opportunity. Yeah, I just pulled up a chart while you're talking, and this is certainly a topic close to my heart. We talk a lot about currency hedging. Uh, we're not going to talk about specific funds here, uh, as we can't. But you know, last year, S&P 500 was up 11%. Broad international equities flat on the year. Uh, UK, if you hedge the currency, is up 20, right? So the UK outperformed by double as long as you don't have the currency risk. But uh, it's sort of an interesting an interesting proposition. A lot of the currencies have moved a lot. Um, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, when, you, when, I, when, people, when I talk about that concept with people, people say the euro's fallen so much, it's, it's, it's done, or the pound has already fallen a lot. I mean, how do you think about that question? Well, I, I think you, uh, you sort of identified some of the issues that we're, we're looking at. There are a number of um, you know, elections coming down, down the pike and, and potentially some referendums as well. And then uh, you know, you know, just Brexit itself. Uh, there was the referendum, but uh, that's going to take a while to play out. So, so we we don't have a a particular view on on individual you know, currencies um, by and large. That being said, there are uh, certain of these things coming up. The um, the, the the sort of the um, the, the the nuclear situation, which we we don't expect, um, but you know, certainly has to be on the radar, would be a complete breakup of of the euro. Um, but short of that, um, you know, I think that you're going to have you know some events which are uh, positive and negative. We you know we had the um, the the Italian decision a few weeks ago, Austria as well, which actually um, worked out. Differently in terms of actually um, more of a uh, uh, euro-oriented um, outcome than some people were were afraid of going forward. So I, even if there is this backdrop of of um, you know a more populist um, anti-Europe sentiment, it's not monolithic, and I think that there will be uh, some moves that uh, move in that direction, and maybe some that don't. 
So uh, we're, we're, we're counting down. Time flies, I know, when you're, when you're having fun here. But we have about two minutes left in the program. We've covered a number of topics, um, but maybe I sort of leave an open-ended question for you here. I mean, of all the things we talked about, things you'd like to, like to, to say about LGL Partners, your firm, your approach, and, and what you think about, uh, any, any thoughts as we, we wrap it, uh, countdown to the bottom? Well, well, yes. I, I mean, you know, I, we, um, we, we certainly have a, a long-term mindset and, you know, that's something that we really like to, to emphasize with, with all our, our clients and the people we speak to, um, because we are investing over multiple market cycles because our, our goal as, as we see it, is both to preserve and grow wealth, uh, you know, rather than, uh, trade in and out of things. And, you know, I think 2016 was a, a great example of this, and there there will be many other ones. But you look at January and February, uh, the market's off at, uh, 10%, 10% um, or more going into middle of February. And then over the next two or three weeks, it completely reversed. You had Brexit, and the market's off 6% in the U.S., completely reversed within a week. You had the... Um, the overnight after the the U.S. election, with uh, you know S and P futures off five percent, and then the next day flat or up. So, we we really believe in in identifying you know valuations, opportunities, and risk premia that get expressed over multiple years, uh, and then putting together asset allocation that that to some degree smooth those fluctuations. But we really think it's important to. Uh, to maintain a long-term orientation, to be mindful of when there are value dislocations, but it's really hard to to get the benefits of asset classes if you have a trading mentality. Well, James McGrath, thanks for coming to the studio. A new new friend here, Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Thanks again, James, for coming to the studio. I'd like to also thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Uh, you could also now listen to our show on the Behind the Markets podcast. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Have a great week. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.